2: As the night goes on, Um, we're very honored to welcome to tonight's edition of Writers Live P.J. Crowley, whose new book is Red Line, American Foreign Policy in a Time of Fractured Politics and Failing States. And here to introduce Mr. Crowley, we're happy to welcome back our friend April Ryan, who I don't think needs much of an introduction (laughs) to any of you. Thank you, April. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Um, Hello, everyone. Good evening. This is a very interesting time, isn't it? (laughs) I literally was jumping from 95 to 295 to Route 1 to be here for my friend, PJ Crowley. And as I was jumping around, I said, I really must love PJ, (laughs) because everything is breaking loose as we speak. It's all national security which is his forte. I mean, he can tell you everything, um, from Kosovo to what's happening in Syria to Russia to, to Africa to all things in between, anything uh, security-related. But I want to tell you a little bit about my friend PJ. PJ is someone, he's one of my go-to people when it comes to issues of intelligence. I'm not supposed to tell my sources, but he's <laughs> one of them. <laughs> and that happened... Um, a while ago, about 20 years ago, and we were trying to remember how we met. And we met during the Clinton years. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, It was a lot going on, and it wasn't about, we weren't talking about national security when we met. We were talking about Monica Lewinsky. (laughs) He served in the Clinton administration and he knew Monica Lewinsky, but that's not what tonight is about. It's not that red line. <laughs> it's a, You know, so he was there in intelligence, in the intelligence capacity. But PJ is wise. He's got wisdom of, of years, wisdom of military, wisdom of intelligence, wisdom of countries. And I'm going to give you a little bit about PJ. PJ is a retired Air Force colonel and a veteran, and is a veteran of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in 1991. He served in the National Security Council staff at the White House as a special assistant to President Bill Clinton and Deputy Press Secretary. He deployed to the NATO headquarters in Brussels during the 1999 Kosovo crisis in support of the NATO Secretary General, helping to develop a strategic communications capability in support of the NATO campaign. This is my friend, PJ. And also, let's fast forward to the Obama years. You would see him at the State Department. He was assistant... Secretary of State uh, for Hillary Clinton, the then Secretary of State. He talked about many issues uh, as it relates to foreign policy and how this nation worked with allies and adversaries. He gave wisdom and warnings from the podium, and he is someone who is very familiar with what's going on today. So when it comes to Q&A, you ask him about, yes, you do, don't even go there, you can ask him. About the issues, it is a special oh, kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it is a special kind of crazy, but you can ask him about issues of, of the sensitivity of how presidents get their intelligence when it comes to the most recent issue with President Trump talking to the leader of Russia and giving sensitive information. I hear it wasn't um, illegal, but it was kind of uh, sloppy. Am I correct? It was curious. It was curious, okay. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you my friend, PJ Crowley, the author of the wonderful book, Red Line. PJ, the floor is
1: yours. I can tell you that uh, I, I'm a, and, and my wife Paula Kujas is here. She's also a retired Air Force colonel, and um, we are both enormous April Ryan fans. And, and I can appreciate the fact that when we tuned into the White House briefing recently, and there is the uh, White House press secretary going, "Don't, don't shake your head. Don't shake your head." and April's shaking her head. <laughs> And and then, uh, you know, our, our, our daughter called a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and I said, hi, how are you? She goes, April has broken the Internet. <laughs> because they, 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 they caught her on camera going, oh, Lord, <laughs> in response to some crazy statement. Yeah, and, and everyone is is clipping that and and sending it around to all their friends. And, 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 the Hitler statement. Yeah. Huh? The Hitler statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Lord. And, and you, and you of course, you were you were also wise uh, in in terms of the ways in Washington and understood how how crazy um, that that was. Um, so thank you all. You know, for coming. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, in Baltimore um, and. Uh, I, I thank you know Tracy Diamond Judy Cooper and of course my friend April you know, Ryan you know for help helped in setting this up. Um, let me talk about you know the book for a few minutes. I know that we have a podcast here, so we'll go out to uh, you know a wider distribution. Uh, but I'm more than happy to try to help interpret you know Washington uh, for you these days. Although I, I have to tell you it's it, it's not necessarily a dynamic that. Uh, that I uh, recognize, given the, the the discipline of the Obama presidency, and on a relative basis, the discipline of the you know, Clinton <clears throat> presidency and 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 the Bush presidency as well. This is a very very different experience that we are we are all going through. But you know, there's a for those of you who who are familiar with uh, national security or defense issues, you know, there's a old expression that generals are prone to refight the last war. Um, there's a lot of truth to that, although you know generals tend to be leery of the kinds of unconventional conflicts that we have confronted most recently in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. But the flip side of that is that politicians seek to avoid the last war. Or at least to avoid the perceived mistakes of their predecessors. Um, for if you're as old as I am, you re- remember back to you know Lyndon Johnson and his approach to you know Vietnam. It was significantly uh, influenced by Korea. You know George H.W. Bush thought that he had killed you know the so-called Vietnam syndrome. You know George W. Bush viewed. Bosnia, and Kosovo as unnecessary diversions and did not believe in nation-building, although he would oversee the most ambitious attempts to remake countries since the Marshall Plan. Now, Barack Obama became the Democratic nominee in 2008 because he opposed the Iraq War. He was elected president to get U.S. forces out of Iraq, Now, notwithstanding Donald Trump's narrative of make America great again, Donald Trump singularly stood on stage at a Republican debate in South Carolina and called the Iraq intervention, as I recall, a big, fat mistake. Now, whereas Obama hesitated when the Assad regime crossed the red line against the use of chemical weapons in Syria... Donald Trump did not. That said, there is not a significant rhetorical difference from one of Obama's frequent political narratives, nation-building begins at home, and Donald Trump's narrative of make America great again. During my 30-year career in the national security world, I frequently heard colleagues invoke Senator Arthur Vandenberg who said, politics should stop at the water's edge. He said it in the context of the Cold War that the national security of the United States should remain above part of politics or above partisanship. Now, there was a broad bipartisan consensus regarding our struggle against the Soviet Union, but don't be fooled. Even during the Cold War, our actions were always influenced by politics always a careful eye towards midterm elections or a sense of what the American people were willing to accept. Even one of the most significant breakthroughs of the past 50 years, Richard Nixon's trip to China and the eventual normalization of relations with the People's Republic, but he took that step only when he was convinced that the American people were willing to view China through a different lens and that the potency of the political narrative of who lost China had receded. Even with his breakthrough, Richard Nixon postponed questions about normalization until after the 1974 midterms. And of course, before that happened, Watergate intervened and normalization fell to Jimmy Carter. There is an irony in this belief that within the foreign policy establishment, what Obama termed the blob, I consider myself a card-carrying member of the blob, that politics should not play a role in the formulation and execution of foreign policy. You know, When I was at the State Department, we spent a great deal of effort to understand the politics of other countries and how that might affect relations with the United States. I assure you, over the past few weeks, there was considerable attention paid to the potential implications of a Marine Le Pen victory in France. And both here in the United States and in Europe, there was a great deal of relief that Emmanuel Macron was elected and is now putting together a government in Paris. Politics matters. No, politics matter. You know, now last year there was a public referendum in Great Britain, instantly changing British foreign policy and its relations with Europe and the rest of the world. There will be an election next month in Britain intended to strengthen the hand of Prime Minister Theresa May as she begins Brexit negotiations with the European Union. Oh, by the way, a significant sub-element of the French population... um, or the French election was the need for France, Germany, and the European Union to be tough on Great Britain in these upcoming negotiations. This is all about politics. Politics matters here in, in this country and around the world. That's the reason I wrote Red Line, to chart the intersection of American foreign policy and American domestic politics particularly how this dynamic affects our approach to conflicts in the Middle East. I didn't write the book with Donald Trump in mind, but his election reinforces the book's central premise, that you cannot understand American foreign policy today without understanding American domestic politics today. Now In our q and I'll be happy to provide a greater perspective on the Trump administration. Obviously, Trump's rhetoric is sharper than Obama's, but he is subject to the same political boundaries that shape the Obama foreign policy. Donald Trump was elected to solve problems in middle America, not to solve problems in the Middle East. We can debate whether his foreign policy was the right one or the the wrong one in terms of world events, but Barack Obama largely delivered the foreign policy that he advertised in 2008 and for which he was elected. Now, there was a different dynamic around the Bush administration. You'll recall, perhaps, in 2000 that George W. Bush outlined a fairly conservative foreign policy. He believed that the international activism of the 1990s, the humanitarian interventions in Bosnia and Kosovo, in pursuit of interests that were important but not necessarily vital. He believed that these were unnecessary diversions. It actually was Al Gore who was the more interventionist candidate in 2000. But the political boundaries of the 2000 election evaporated on September 11. President Bush had complete freedom to construct a narrative around the so-called war on terror, with us or against us, and then build a strategy around that narrative. Now, in in my line of work as a government spokesman for 30 years, words matter. In President Bush's initial statement from the Oval Office on the evening of September 11th, he said, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. Those 17 words were the most consequential of the Bush presidency. They illuminated a path that led the United States to not just Afghanistan, but also to Iraq. Now, the war on terror remains, even to this day, a battle of narratives. The Bush administration underestimated how the Iraq invasion played into Osama bin Laden's narrative of a war between Islam and its far enemy, United States. That dynamic is still playing out in the ongoing conflict between the West and the Islamic State. Now, the political boundaries began to close during the 2004 election and narrowed further in 2008. The American people were concerned about the rising costs of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, That increased skepticism, amplified by the financial crisis. led them to elect a candidate who promised to reset relations with America's allies, constructively engage America's adversaries, wind down America's wars, and avoid getting more deeply involved in future conflicts in the Middle East. Now, over eight years, Obama couldn't end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but he made them more sustainable. He reached the nuclear agreement with Iran and transformed our relationship with Burma, and Cuba. His campaign against the Islamic State is broadly supported today around the world. Europe gave Obama the Nobel Prize largely on his agenda, not his accomplishments. Obama was certainly an internationalist, but he was not an interventionist, not, not, at least not when it comes to the overuse of traditional ground forces. Obama used special operations forces, he employed drones, he did not place combat divisions in the middle of intractable conflicts that he did not believe the United States could solve. And this certainly reflects, is reflected in his caution towards Syria. The dilemma that he encountered on August 31, 2013, a military imperative to bomb Syria in the aftermath of the use of chemical weapons and yet profound public skepticism was captured actually in 1984 by Caspar Weinberger, Secretary of Defense at the time, in a doctrine that attempted to apply the lessons of Vietnam but more significantly the lessons of Lebanon. Weinberger said in part that the United States should never go to war without quote-unquote Reasonable assurance of support from Congress and the American people. Obama believed he could obtain the votes in favor of military action in Syria, but in the end, Congress wanted no part of such a tough vote. Now, ironically, Obama made the opposite assessment regarding Libya, believing that Congress was incapable of unifying behind the NATO intervention while it simultaneously tried to shut down the government over a budget dispute. In Libya, Obama moved beyond his political mandate, but limited what the United States would do. That decision, in sharp contrast to the 1990s, was actually far more consequential. The Libyan government, or more accurately, governments, are still trying to bring order to the chaos across a country driven both by extremists and tribal and militia competition for power. Now in Syria, Obama eventually defined a mission, the degradation and defeat of the Islamic State that is consistent with his mandate. I believe this, is the form, this was the foremost foreign policy mandate to emerge in the 2016 campaign as well. My book reviews the history of tensions between the United States and Iran and the potent narratives that exist on both sides of that relationship. The United States in the eyes of Iran as a great Satan and for the United States, Iran as a rogue nation. Those narratives and the hardline politics behind them will restrict cooperation beyond the nuclear issue. Now, if you remember back to the summer of 2015, Republicans could not block the deal, so instead they ran against it during the 2016 campaign, although it remains unclear what the Trump administration will actually do about the deal he described as the worst in history. The red line and the good deal represent the bookends of the Obama administration its greatest failure on the one hand, and its most significant success on the other. In my book, I review the attempt at a reset in relations with Russia, which had limited success under President Dmitry Medvedev and ended with the return of Vladimir Putin. Notwithstanding Trump's interest in another reset, it is far more likely that he will end his term just as disillusioned about Russia as did Presidents Bush and Obama. The book charts the evolution of our relationship with China, including the challenge of just describing what it is. Is China a strategic partner, as the Clinton administration suggested? Is China a strategic competitor, as the Bush administration uh, suggested? You know, the answer is a little of both. Uh, It is the most consequential bilateral relationship in the world today. It's always going to have, you know, points of friction. My book tries to update our narrative around the the battle against violent extremism. You know, if you look back, Obama inherited three wars, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the so-called war on terror. In many respects... Uh, over the years, they've now merged into one. The Bush conception of a war on terror proved to be too broad. It was not winnable or sustainable. The Obama reconception of a war against al-Qaeda proved to be too narrow. Al-Qaeda remains a diminished adversary, but notwithstanding the legal gymnastics of connecting an al-Qaeda to the Islamic State You know, under the under what's called the 2001 authorization for the use of force, that is still, in essence, our declaration of war against what Mr. Trump characterizes as radical Islamic terrorism. This is a different war than the one initiated by Osama bin Laden in the 1990s. The United States remains under threat, but is no longer central to the struggle. This conflict today is far less about who we are and far more about who they are, who is a true believer, how will they live, and how will they they relate to the modern world and the Western world. In my book, I describe the current situation as a struggle within Islam. The United States has a stake in the outcome, but it will be up to the region, militarily, but most importantly, politically, to resolve the struggle and its many dimensions, all of which are manifest in Syria. Obama's skepticism regarding Syria was, in my view, strategically sound. No doubt, Donald Trump, despite his tough rhetoric, shares that skepticism. If politics are a guide, he's going to largely follow Obama's existing strategy in Syria where Obama struggled, was trying to balance his caution regarding Syria with the expansive narrative of American indispensability. It was Obama's view, certainly shared by my former boss, Hillary Clinton, that while no major global challenge could be solved by the United States alone, no major global challenge could be solved without the meaningful involvement of the United States but therein lies a political and strategic conundrum. Because of the perceived overreach in Iraq, the United States has made itself dispensable in Libya and Syria. Going forward, we have to close the gap between what we say and what we do. The belief in the importance of American power and yet the reluctance to bear the costs of American leadership the expansion, expansive conception of American exceptionalism and indispensability, and yet the skepticism regarding what America can actually achieve in the world or needs to achieve in the Middle East. In 2013, Vladimir Putin placed an op-ed in the New York Times where he suggested it was dangerous for any country to consider itself exceptional. I think he's wrong. The United States, given its culture, its innovation, its inclusion, its economy, is exceptional. It, is, it has unrivaled power, both hard power and soft power. Yet it is not indispensable. The United States is the only true global power today. But in a world of rising powers like China and Russia, micro powers like the Islamic State and social media that has empowered individuals like never before, there are limits to what the United States can achieve in this world at an affordable and sustainable cost. And this is the key lesson that the Trump administration is just beginning to confront, understanding what can or needs to be accomplished over the long term and what can reasonably be accomplished in a four or eight year presidential cycle. Now, whether good or bad in his first 100 days in office, as chaotic as it has been, Donald Trump has actually attempted to do what he said he would on the campaign in 2016, advocating a ban on Muslim travel to the United States, building a great, great wall along America's border with Mexico, Backing away from international trade agreements, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership and potentially NAFTA, all ostensibly contributing to making America great again. I think on a substantive level, he's wrong about these things. All of them will ultimately undermine American leadership. But on politics, at least so far, you know, he continues to have the political support of the base and the constituencies that elected him, but we'll see for how long. Let, let me stop there, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. Beginning with April, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Jay. what is the greatest intelligence foreign policy issue that this country is facing right now?
1: The most difficult intelligence
2: and? And or foreign policy issue, because... Intelligence and foreign policy go hand in hand. So what is the greatest issue right now in 2017 today that this nation is facing when it comes to, I guess, foreign policy, foreign policy and intelligence? The conjoined twins, I call it.
1: I would say that the, the, the greatest intelligence challenge that we have is trying to anticipate what is going to drive the world 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Um, we, we are very adaptable. We, you know, once we see something, we can respond effectively in, in a relatively short period of time. But um, in, in government in the late 1980s, we all had a sense that sooner or later the Soviet Union was going to fail. We just didn't know when. But we didn't see it coming as rapidly as it did. Um, we we didn't see the um, we, we we knew about this guy called Osama bin Laden, but we didn't really see how uh, potentially dangerous uh, he he could be. Um, and and we didn't see how various forces in the Middle East could crystallize around you know the Islamic State. So I I, I think that um, we're still trying to adapt. Uh, you know, 25 years after the end of the Cold War, we were very very good at studying a static adversary who, who didn't change a whole lot from year to year. The world is becoming much more dynamic and we're struggling to understand um, how this world is operating today. I would say that there are two major challenges connected to that. The first is the the dissolution of the state system as we currently know it. If you think to the Middle East today, um, and our, our colleague here can comment certainly as well, you know, is Yemen one country or two? Is Iraq one country or three? Is Syria one country or four? Is Libya a country at all? Um, and, and the answer is we don't know. Um, uh, so I, I think that, that how you find a way to stabilize these, co- these conflicts and then rebuild them, not over years, over decades, is going to be an enormous challenge you know, for all of us. Um, and then you know, to a political constituency that does want to solve problems <clears throat> in middle America, not in the Middle East, who is going to pay for the rebuilding of the Middle East when these wars end? And, and if it's a country like Saudi Arabia, the future of the Middle East is going to be very, very different. And 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 then then we would construct it. I, I would say a second major problem involves climate change. Um, and and this is where the. Ongoing willingness of the Trump administration, aided and abetted by members of Congress, the, the so-called climate deniers, I, I think that's a that's a very very significant challenge politically. Um, interestingly enough, you know, among the strongest believers in climate change um, is the United States military. You know, um, if, if you know, because if you are the commander of the. <clears throat> Uh, enormous naval station in Norfolk, Virginia, for example, you recognize that under current circumstances, if if the projections are true, eventually the Norfolk naval station uh, will be underwater. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so uh, you know we're going to need you know people sensible people like the Secretary of Defense, you know General Jim Mattis, who I've known for about 25 years. He's going to have to be the one that eventually commi- con- convinces the president, you know, don't, you know, you've got to accept that this is something that we need to deal with, uh, and the sooner we do, the better. Don't be afraid to question. Yes, sir.
3: Okay. Uh, the question I have is, did the United States underestimate uh, the visceralness of Russian reaction to what happened in Ukraine? Because the way I look at it, I think they believe that there was US spending in Ukraine <laughs> during the uh, revolution that took place there. And my take is that that was what prompted them to kind of step out <laughs> into, the, into Syria that as, as, uh, as they did. I mean, they were there, but.
1: Yeah, that, that, th- there's, there's no quite The question is, is what is the dynamic between what happened in Ukraine? And what happened in Syria, um, I you know, Putin is a brutally uh, pragmatic and and um, uh, leader, um, and and he I, I you know, I think that he 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 probably um, I I don't I don't you know. A lot of people project that that if if Obama had done something different in two thousand thirteen if he had if he had pulled the trigger and 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 we had launched a military strike against Syria in two thousand and thirteen that Ukraine would be different I, I'm not sure I buy into that but but there's no question that that uh, when when Obama hesitated um, Putin felt somewhat emboldened but I think you have to you know what, what drives leaders are their perceptions of interests, and and what is driving Russia in Syria, is is an earnest if a wrong judgment, that that regardless of how brutal a leader might be, um, if if he can govern, if he if he, if he's if he's the best hope for stability, then they're going to back him, and that's what they've done. And, and there's this conundrum that that um, Russia wants to support Assad. Russia and Iran want to see Assad gain regain control of the whole country, but they refuse to recognize that that's not possible. Ultimately, Assad can maybe control 40% of the country, 50% of the country, but there's no way that he's going to be able to recreate in 2017, 2018, 2019. You know the situation that he was prior to two thousand eleven. It's not possible. Um, but but Russia is driven by its 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 perception that the worst thing you can do when confronting violent extremism is chaos. But they're not willing to accept that to get to a more stable state, something has to happen with regard to Assad. With respect to Ukraine, um, what what. What keeps Vladimir Putin up late at night are these color revolutions, and, and what happened is is Putin saw some protests in Russia, and then he saw the protests in the Maidan in in Ukraine, um, and and he he decided to create what we call a frozen conflict. Um, and and so he stopped the Ukraine revolution in its tracks, and and that's you know that's where we are, um, you know, and, and that's that's what that, you know at, at the end of the day what is what drives Putin is not so much his perception of Obama although that factors into it or or, or Trump. What drives Putin is domestic politics. He 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 wants to be able to rule until twenty twenty five, and then he wants to retire with the billions that he's accrued in, in various bank accounts, and he wants to live the rest of his life uh, in Russia, or and or come back and, and and rule again. But but you know it, it is it is domestic politics, and right now. Um, the Russians still remember the chaos of the 1990s and they're giving Putin the benefit of the doubt.
3: I just have one more thing. Sure. I mean, I kind of think that Obama made the right decision with Libya <laughs> with, uh, with not intervening in, in Syria in the red line. I think the mistake was setting the red line, making that statement. My question is, regarding regard to Syria, I think my take is the U.S. conundrum in Syria is with dealing with, with its allies that are just sponsoring some of the groups there. That's my thing. I think you, if the US could rain it, have been able to rain in like I mean <laughs> some of these people were coming in from Turkey and all these places to come and it's of the Jalis groups. I think they're coming in from those places. And there were there were different groups that were being armed by different US allies. I my take is that what led to the was the US couldn't really I, mean, that's
1: difficult. Oh, I I I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> that that, that uh, you know, um, there was a great deal of disillusionment that built up built up in the Middle East over over the Obama administration. Um, there were high hopes after the president's speech in Cairo, and, and then it, it went downhill from there. Um, but I, I've been cautioning my friends from the Middle East that, that you think that Trump is going to ride in on the right horse and solve all your problems. He's not going to do that. He, that's not why he was elected. Um, yeah, and, and, and regarding Syria, there's, there, you know, the, the region doesn't have a solution to Syria. It has about eight different solutions to Syria. One's Iran. One's Turkey. One's Saudi Arabia. One's uh, Qatar. They're different. You know Iran and, and and so forth. You know and and so I I think that you know Obama's caution with respect to Syria is was well founded. I think Trump's caution with respect to Syria is, is well founded. He's going to be more prone to take individual military actions as he did. He you know there was a use of chemical weapons and and Trump fired. And I, I I wish that Obama had done that in in two thousand and thirteen. But unless, unless there's an external event like another 9-11, I, I don't think that Trump is going to try to solve the situation in Syria beyond the defeat of the Islamic State.
4: Um, going back to what you said about the tribalism, the, is Iraq three or all that? Do you think that, that the, the roots of that tribalism is a reaction to the globalization?
1: There's certainly... Um, I mean, the same political dynamic that we see in this country, you know, where a lot of... You know, there, there there are issues with respect to globalization. There's also a lot of issues around modernization. You know, and we tend to confuse the two. Um, if, if you had a factory job in Ohio that, that disappeared, did it disappear because it was exported to pick a country Mexico uh, maybe but more likely you weren't replaced by a Mexican worker you're replaced by a robot um, I, I do I definitely think that that you know Islam is struggling to come to grips with the modern world uh, and and I, I'm by no means an expert in in Islam you know but I I, I think that we, we we've We've tended to fool ourselves that we, as a largely Judeo-Christian country, you know, can offer a solution that it, that is 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 rooted in part about you know, in a religion or or at least the hijacking of a religion by a certain narrow constituency. Ultimately, um, you know, this is something that has to be solved within the Islamic world, supported by the United States. I, I would tell you that I think that. Um, among the failures of U.S. policy, we we should be harder on Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, and, and in terms of their expert of Wahhabism, you know, a, a you know, and, and um, you know the uh, Wahhabism and the and the uh, ideology behind the Islamic State are not identical, but it's not necessarily that that longer trip. Um, and and we, we should be harder on Pakistan, you know, because Pakistan continues to harbor elements that have made our challenge, our, you know, our ability to solve problems in Afghanistan much more difficult. Uh, so I, I do think that we, we need to be tougher on the Islamic world to have them solve what is basically essential contradictions, you know, within various interpretations of Islam.
4: Uh, I have a question about our U.S. Senate. Earlier this month, well, we all know how divided the U.S. Senate, how divided Congress is. But earlier this month, all 100 U.S. Senators agreed on something. They agreed and they put their signatures on a letter to the United Nations chastising the U.N. for being uh, anti-Israel. For having a bias against Israel, and I'm aware of APAC and that influence, um, but I'm very disappointed that all 100 uh, signed on. And I'm what, and, and based on the polls that I've seen coming out of Brookings, it doesn't sound like all these senators are following the majority of Americans on our opinion about the U.S. Uh, Relationship to Israel and Palestine, so I'm wondering what your your thoughts are.
1: Well, um, within the UN General Assembly, there is a bias towards Palestine, Um, and and Israel has a point up to a point, Um, but the Israelis have not done themselves any favors Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of adapting their policies, you know, to to um, you know, create a clearer path towards a solution with the the Palestinians. Um, uh, I was at Camp David in two thousand. Um, we came very very close, um, but uh, ultimately uh, Ehud Barak, the leader of Israel, accepted President Clinton's recommendations with some qualifications, and and Arafat did not. Um, we've never been. As close as we were in that period from uh, late uh, from the middle of 2000 to early 2001, uh, and and the, the, the chances of a solution are much more difficult today than they were uh, back uh, you know 17 years ago uh, for two reasons. One, the Israeli politics has ter- has moved right. You know the there in, in 2000 there was a rough balance between you know, the right wing in Israel led by Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu, and and the peace left at the time led by Ehud Barak, Um, there's no longer a peace left. Uh, And and so Netanyahu dominates Israeli politics and he has no interest in reaching an agreement with the Palestinians. Uh, The Palestinian politics is equally difficult. You now, rather than having Fatah have control of, of the West Bank and Gaza, uh, Hamas has control of Gaza. It makes it more difficult to have a negotiation if you don't control the territory in question. But I, I think that the Israelis have made what I consider to be a, a fundamental strategic mistake. And, and not to get off on a tangent here, but, but you know, um, during the Clinton administration, there was a successful negotiation in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and there was an unsuccessful negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and, and the difference between the two, the dynamic was one of economics. Um, in, in Ireland, all of a sudden, with the evolution, the emergence of what was called the Celtic Tiger, um, they, they said, We have more to gain economically than we have to continue the conflict. Um, if I were the Israeli Prime Minister, I would be investing very significantly in the West Bank. I would, I would, I would try to make the West Bank. Uh, uh, as, as much of a, uh, of, a, of a functioning economy as I could, you know, so that the Palestinians then saw that there was something to gain by reaching an agreement, uh, and, and then that might enable the people in Gaza to throw out Hamas and, and see what could be done there. But um, the ultimately the. the the fact that we don't have an agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians is not a substantive problem. We know what the solution looks like; it's been clear since 2000. It, it's a political challenge. The Israelis, you know, under Netanyahu, don't want to make concessions, and the Palestinians under uh, Abu Mazen uh, are not willing to give up it's, you know, very, very important things, you know, such as the right of return they'd have a right of return to a Palestinian state, they wouldn't have a right of return to Israel proper, and and that's something that's very, very difficult for them to give up. But to me, this is a political challenge. So that's a long answer to a very good question. I mean, Israel does have legitimate concerns, but Israel has not engaged the United Nations in ways that I think would be advantageous to them. Yes, sir.
3: Can you explain uh, what is the U.S. policy in Yemen? I mean, this war has been, war has been going on for almost. It's a very good question. It's been going on for almost uh, three years now. And I remember when it started. And what is the policy? And also, you mentioned that if the Saudis were in control, if the Saudis were um, to fund or. Reconstruction in the Middle East that they would have a different um, uh, vision than the U.S. Can you expand more on what that vision? Sure. Is?
1: I, I would say that the uh, if the United States does have a policy with regard to Yemen, I'm not sure that we do. Um, I, I, I think we've handed over our policy on Yemen to Saudi Arabia, uh, and 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 that has consequences, as you know. Um, ostensibly, our policy is the, um, the the recreation of the government of Yemen, you know, led by Mr. Hadi. Um, but I, I think that our part of our challenge in Yemen is interpreting what exactly the Houthis represent. Um, we see in the Houthi uprising. Uh, the hand of Iran, and, and Iran is, is supporting the Houthis. And the Houthis are the, the other, you know, there's, there's a multifaceted conflict going on in Yemen uh, with the government on one side, w- supported by Saudi Arabia and other Gulf allies, a Houthi uh, uprising, and, and uh, the Houthis are more closely aligned with Iran religiously, not, not, not directly. Um, but behind the Houthi uprising is uh, you know, Mr. Saleh, the former president. You know, so as much as, as, as there is a dimension of Saudi, you know, a, a rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran that's manifest in Yemen, I see this far more as a struggle between two leaders competing for power. You know, uh, ha- you know, Saleh wants to come back to power, Hadi wants to hold on to power, And and so lots of people have gone to war and lots of people have been killed as a result. Um, Our primary interest in Yemen is to make sure that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula doesn't gain meaningful territory in the same way that the Islamic State uh, has in Syria and Iraq. That's our primary interest. That may be, we you know that, that may be too narrow for those who, who love Yemen. Um, but but that's where that's where our primary interest is. Um, whether we have a strategy that can that can see the uh, reduction of the threat posed by the Islamic by, by Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, I, I'm, I'm I'm suspicious that we do. What the
3: U.S. I mean, the U.S. has a lot of le- leverage, right, in terms of trying to. Because I, I, I ask this because I, the pictures I see from that country is just devastating. I mean, the children who are hungry and almost kind like, seems from Biafra in the nineteen sixties. So I'm saying, what kind of leverage do can we bear put upon the? Because this conflict can go on, as we you know, if if the Saudis aren't jockeying here and there. To to get in their allies or whoever that wants to be they want to be involved. In.
1: You know that, that that question leverage is a very good question. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm really not sure how much leverage we do have in a, in a place like Yemen. Uh, you know for two reasons. Um, I mean Barack Obama was right that the that the, the Iran nuclear deal was about one thing. We 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 just were pushing ten or fifteen years down the road the question of whether Iran would go nuclear or not. Now, I, I do think that behind that, the, um, the Obama administration had perfectly legitimate hopes that, that we could begin to work with Iran on other issues, Yemen being one and Syria being uh, the other. Um, and, and and the short answer is, Iran wanted no part of a, a more expanded discussion about other issues. You know, um, now we'll see what happens in the in the election. Iran has election coming up this weekend. Um, I think on the one, you know, if Rouhani wins the second term, that's probably better than the alternative. But now you have a situation in our country where where Trump has no interest. In engaging with Iran. And 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 that's actually been the history of the relationship. There have been very times if you go back to 1979, you know, and, and the embassy takeover and the break in relations between the United States and Iran, there have been times where we wanted to talk and Iran didn't. There were times that Iran wanted to talk and we didn't. There was this one window of uh, you know in the in the latter stages of the Obama administration where both countries wanted to talk and needed to talk, and, and achieved something significant, but now we've gone off on our, on our separate ways again. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, we are supporting Saudi Arabia. I think that comes with a lot of baggage, because there are a lot of people getting killed in, in Yemen because of Saudi indiscriminate bombing. But ultimately, you cannot solve a problem such as Yemen without having some sort of meaningful conversation with Iran, and and I don't see the prospects of that anytime soon. So, again, a a long answer to a good question, which is I don't know that we really... we, We have a strategy with respect to Yemen. I don't necessarily think it's a successful one. Okay, thank you. But whenever you get a
3: chance, I wanted to ask you about your vision. You talked about the vision of if the Saudis were... Had to do the reconstruction. The vision will be different from the U.S. Well, that's I mean,
1: just very briefly to talk about Saudi Arabia. I mean, there there is the Deputy Crown Prince who's got a very interesting uh, document called Vision 2030. It, it is a transformative document for the for Saudi Arabia if they're serious about it and if they actually stay focused on it. Um, they're, they're they're paying a lot of lip service to it, but we'll see if they're staying power beyond, uh, you know, the current king who is in charge, but he's frail. Um, you know, so, you know, there will be a power struggle after King Salman dies, you know, in the next few years. If the younger generation comes to power in Saudi Arabia... In Saudi Arabia, when you talk about kings, young kings, they're in their 70s. <laughs> um, but but if if the next generation of leaders comes to power in Saudi Arabia and they and and the 2030 document survives, then then that becomes very very interesting. Yes, sir. I have a Question. Uh, uh, I know it's a rhetorical
0: question. But in your opinion, why are some people so power hungry and it doesn't do anything for the people? You know, it doesn't benefit the people. They just keep us.
1: Uh, you know, uh, back to the question about, about dysfunction in, in Washington. Uh, you know, we have to take some responsibility for this. Um, no one's happy with what's happening in Washington, but of the 536 people in Washington that matter, president, 100 senators, 435 congressmen, we still send 95% of them back, election after election after election, and we expect a different result. You know, if we want something different in Washington, you know, we've got to elect different people. You know, or, or we need to tell our representatives compromise. Because right now, Blue America sends a cadre to Washington saying, don't compromise. Red America sends a cadre to Washington saying, don't compromise. And so we don't get anything done. That said, I, I, I will tell you that, that when you travel around the world, and April and I have traveled around the world together, um, we, we should give ourselves a pat on the back. Because the one thing that we do do, as chaotic as the 2016 election was, as chaotic as the 2000 election was, we believe in the peaceful transfer of power and, and we do have people that hold power, they may abuse it when they're in the office, but eventually they do relinquish it. Um, that doesn't happen in, in all countries, or all countries that matter. You know, in, in a country like Turkey, uh, we were talking before we started about, about then Prime Minister Erdogan, you know, for the first five years or so of his, of his rule in Turkey, he was very, very constructive. Um, the Turkish economy took off. Uh, you know, he, he pushed the uh, Turkish military out of politics or further out of politics. But here we are now, what, 15, give or take 15 years, and he's now trying to set himself up as the president for life. You know, and, and it's all about power. You know? and, and, and you see that repeated in lots of places. You know, in a country like Rwanda, you know, Paul Kagame has done great things. Paul Kagame has probably stayed too long. You know, in, in Uganda, Museveni did great things. He's undoubtedly stayed too long. You know, when you talk about Africa, you know, President Rawlings of Ghana. Jerry John, you know. I mean, he, he was popular, uh, and he gave it up. You know, and, and sadly, if you look at a, someone like Jacob Zuma, you know, in South Africa, you know, you know, how far are we getting from the legacy of Nelson Mandela? You know, sadly, too far. But, but that, is, that is something that on a country-by-country-by-country by country by country basis, you know, I mean, Bashar al-Assad, you know, he has to know that he's either going to end up in Russia or he's going to die, you know, uh, you know in, in, in Syria. But he, he can't let go. And, and, and that is something that does afflict too many countries in the world. So as bad as we are, <laughs> you know, we still have something that, that is, is very, very important. And, and we just need to build on it more. Hey, oh, well.
2: Okay, really fast, I want to piggyback off of you talked about the peaceful transfer of power in this nation. Um, there's big controversy and at least three investigations going on in the House, the Senate, and in the FBI, and it circulates around possible Russian involvement in our election process. Why is that such a big issue? And then to that point, a follow-up, why is there another issue? Explain (laughs) the issue of President Trump, and you dealt with, you were in the National Security Council, you dealt with, was it sources? And uh, what's the other one? Sourcen? Uh, methods, methods. Methods, yes. Some of the most sensitive issues um, that some presidents get. This president seems not to get, or at least in this conversation, he did not get the sensitive information to relate to the Russian president where others have. Could you talk to us about the intelligence component and why it is or is not important for a president to relate this to Russia, who's not necessarily yeah. what,
1: what is, I, I mean, I, I understand where Donald Trump is coming from, I don't, I don't agree with him, but he, he somehow believes that the fact that Russia did intervene in the election undermines the legitimacy of his election. I, I understand that, that emotional reaction, but he is the last person in Washington who doesn't believe that Russia played a significant role in the 2016 election. Everybody else does, including the Republicans in the Senate. Um, if I have a concern about Donald Trump, it's twofold. One is he doesn't know what he doesn't know, you know, and, and he is not inclined to study to figure out what he doesn't know. Uh, and, and and where he appears to have gone sideways on this intelligence question is, you know, I mean, between Bill Clinton. George, W. Bush, and Barack Obama, they, they all got their intelligence in different ways. Bill Clinton would read it, George Bush preferred to have a brief to him, but all of them spent hours going over the intelligence. Uh, Donald Trump does not read a great deal, so they take complex intelligence reports and digest them down to bullets. And when you do that, then he, I, in this particular case I just don 't think he understood how sensitive the information was that he passed to the Russian foreign minister um, and, and now he's about to go on his first overseas trip and as I understand it, the guidance that the White House has given to European leaders is if you want to talk to the president, keep it short because he's got a narrow attention span you know and and he's he just doesn't understand complexity. You know, you were there. You know, when we were we were doing the negotiations with the Israelis and the Palestinians, and there you're dealing with multiple versions of history. And, and Bill Clinton could recite all the history of, of of Jerusalem like he had lived there. <laughs> you know, and and he understood the nuances. He, the same happened with the. Irish peace process. He, he just, he understood detail, he understood nuance, and he understood why small things were vitally important to the participants in these negotiations. You know, and, and then you have a Donald Trump standing next to Benjamin Netanyahu who says, well, you know, I don't care if there's a one-state solution or a two-state solution, you've lived in the Middle East. You know, there's a very, very, there's there's a, that's a big deal. It's a a very big deal. You know, and he just kind of dismissed it. It's a small, you know, whatever they decide is okay with us. Well, it's not, you know, because if there's a one state solution uh, and, and the Palestinians sue for citizenship within Israel, then Israel has a choice. You know, they can either be a Jewish state or they can be a democratic state, but they can't be both. You know and depend and, and can I tell you what the choice of Israel would be I can't and then can I tell you what our reaction to that choice would be I can't and, and that's 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 dangerous for them and it's dangerous for us so um, you know I, I wish he was a student of intelligence but so far there's no evidence that he is
2: and why is the importance of Russia what, what is the importance of Russia as it deals with our elections
1: well, the importance of Russia is that that um, Vladimir Putin is trying to undermine the West as we define it, the, li- you know, the, the, the liberal international order. Um, now, will he be successful? I don't think he will be. But well, is, is he making life difficult for us in our election? He just tried to intervene in France. Thankfully, they, they, they rejected that. I'm sure he's going to try to make life difficult for Theresa May in Britain. Uh, he's funding these right-wing movements in Eastern Europe. Uh, he's just trying to sow chaos because he thinks chaos works to the advantage of, of Russia in the short term. It may, but in the long term, uh, you know, Russia has enormous demographic problems. But I, I think that, that that's you know, there's there's a larger point here. We, you know, we should we should fear the short-term effects that Russia can have on the world. But we shouldn't fear that Russia is somehow going to supplant the United States. You know, if, if, you know, in China, for example, China is going to confront something that's never been confronted before. You know, um, a country that is getting rich, but a country that's getting old faster. You know, how they deal with that's going to be an enormous challenge. And, and Russia, their population is shrinking, their population is unhealthy, you know, And their economy is dependent on the export of, of raw materials. That's a losing combination. Um, so so we, should, we should not fear Russia over the long term. But obviously, we should remain very concerned about what Vladimir Putin is trying to do in the short term. I, I on,
4: an, on an optimistic note, <laughs> what do you think the repercussions might
1: I I will tell you very candidly. I I hope we don't try to impeach you. Um, You know, I I, 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 I really, I really, you know, our, our democracy is still got a heartbeat, but it's 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 a lot more fragile than it has been. Uh, I would worry that that an impeachment would just sure. cause so much damage. You know, the best thing that we can do is just in four in, in three and a half years defeat him at the polls. Right? Well, there's
2: conversation about it now. The yeah. remote, um, the I, I I just think
1: that it would Yeah. You know, now, if he does something that's clearly beyond the pale, and and I I you know um, I mean back in 1974 you know you had you had Republicans of significant courage. I I worked for one of them Bill Cohen you know at the time was representative of Maine then became the Senator of Maine then became the Secretary of Defense. You know, but but Bill Cohen showed extraordinary political courage in nineteen seventy four. But we don't have a Bill Cohen in the Senate today. We don't have a Howard Baker in the Senate today, we don't even have a Sam Irwin in the Senate today that, that recognizes that that to do this right, you need it needs to be bipartisan. We have so much partisanship going on in these institutions. I would just worry as to as to how much damage that would do, even if it's justified. I just think we should we should the Democrats just need to keep you know keep try getting their own house in order and have a candidate in 2000. Uh, to, you know, try to retake one of the houses in 2018 and then and then retake the White House in 2020.
0: So yes, sir. you said you hope that the Democrats succeed, <coughs> where the Republicans fail when David Mitch McConnell said our primary yes. you know, effort is to make this a one-term president in yep. representative of Obama. So you're saying that the um, <coughs> Democrats perhaps should succeed when they fail?
1: You know, that's a that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I mean I was on I was on C SPAN a while ago doing an interview on my book and and someone called in and said, you know, Trump is not my president. I want him to fail. You know, and I, I said, you know, as an American, I don't want any president to fail because the consequences are really significant. I, I hope he's not reelected, <laughs> you know. But but you know, in, in the short term, I want him to do what he needs to do on behalf of the country. Whether he'll get there or not, I don't know. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I understand your point. I mean, I I right. I, I, I remain. I mean, it, it is it is remarkable to me that we elected a guy that. I mean, I, I understand Mitch McConnell and the politics of this. I'm I'm still more angry at Donald Trump for trying to suggest that Barack Obama was not an American citizen. I mean, I mean you you can disagree on policy all you want. That's what politics is all about. But 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 Trump and the and the and the Obama deny the, the birthers, went beyond that, and, and I, you know, and and we we let that happen for way too long, you know. And and then we elected the guy that that had picked up the that baton and run with it. You know, that that's. You know, by the way, he's, he's a sexual predator on top of that. You know, um, but I, I, um, I, I just hope that, you know, that the, the Democrats have a strong argument in 2018 and a strong argument in 2020, and, and then we'll see what happens after that.
0: Well, that was an observation. That wasn't my question.
4: <laughs> here's,
0: my, here's my question. We as citizens hear this expression, national security, almost every day. And I'm not sure we as a citizenry understand what that mean. I suspect there is a intelligence, national security, and then there's a political national security that often conflict and also affect our foreign, foreign policy. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I, I agree with you. You know, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not on Fox all that often. But the last time I was on Fox, I was in the green room and there's this retired Navy SEAL who's going on and and, and we were chatting about my book. And, and he, he said, I'm, I'm so glad that Trump attacked Syria, because we're strong. I For what strategic purpose? You know, fine, you know, we can, we can shoot off a missile, you know, and, and destroy something. We probably didn't destroy as much as we thought we did, but, but to what end? And, and, and that's, that's part of our challenge. We, we, we like the idea of America being strong. I want America to be strong. But, but then what are we going to do with, with that strength? You know, during the Republican debates... You know, they were outbidding themselves. Oh, I want to increase the Pentagon by, by so many billion dollars. And of course, Trump comes in and wants to increase the defense budget by 50 something billion dollars. And my wife and I have a vested interest in the defense budget. We, we thank you for our retirement check that we get every month. <laughs> um, but but we, we, we talk about it just in terms of money. You know, I, I want to I increase the size of the Navy. I want to increase the size of the Army then what are you going to do with them? And we, ne- we never get to that part of the equation. You know, okay, you want a bigger army. Where are you going to send them? And if you're not going to send them anywhere, why do we need a bigger army? I, mean, I-, I would tell you the one thing we probably do need is a bigger navy. <laughs> um, you know, because the South China Sea is pretty important body of water and-, and China's trying to take that over. I think we need more ships to go through uh, zones that China thinks that it has... Uh, privileges over, and we want to make a point about freedom of navigation. You, to, to do that, you have to be there. You know, so th- there, there are, there are things that we need to do. But we, we, we in, in politics today, we only ask one question. You know, how much more money for this? But we don't necessarily get to the strategic goal of we need a stronger military to do something else. You know, the Trump administration wants to cut the. Uh, State Department budget by thirty um, hmm. percent. and and if if, if if we're not helping resettle Syrian refugees, who's going to rebuild Syria? Is it gonna be Saudi Arabia? If Saudi Arabia decides to rebuild Syria, Syria is going to be very, very different and, and, and that Syria will may or may not be consistent with American values. So in that respect, money matters. You know Why is Europe the way it is today? Europe's the way it is today because we did something like the Marshall Plan in the late 1940s, and we built Europe the way that we thought it needed to be for their own interest and our interest. Um, and, and so, yes, we need to solve problems in the United States. Um, we also need to make sure that Solutions around the world are consistent with our interests and our values shared by many many countries around the world. and and for that money matters. So that's a long answer but my question <laughs> is, the wrong
0: is there intelligence national security national security in, in other words, does the intelligence community define national security one way? In the politicians, there's a political definition of national security that's defined in a different way. And often these two definitions yeah. conflict uh, conflict, and affect our foreign policy. That was my question. Okay.
1: Um, national security is way more about than, than just military stuff. Let me give you a very short story. In, in the in the late 1990s every every year the White House is supposed to produce a national security strategy um, and in 1998 the Clinton administration produced a national security strategy that declared hiv/aids as a national security issue. Why? Because it was hollowing out the nursing Corps in Botswana it was hollowing out uh, the army in Zambia. It was hollowing out essential institutions of a functioning society in very in a lot of countries, um, you know, particularly in Western Africa. Um, Trent Lott's reaction was this was just a gesture to a political constituency. To his credit, when George W. Bush came into office. He created a program called PEPFAR, which which was strategically invested in HIV-AIDS drugs and improving the health systems of various countries to be able to deliver that aid to to HIV-AIDS victims. And and I can tell you that, that maybe with the exception of Fulbright Scholarships, this has been the most successful foreign policy, you know, foreign aid program that we have in the government today.
0: So was there a political national security you know, issue? But,
1: but so it was both. You know, in other words, you know, so so we, we are expanding the definition of national security. I think from an intelligence standpoint, you know, the intelligence community recognizes that climate change is a national security issue. Donald Trump doesn't but the intelligence community does, and the United States military does. So it, it is fair to say that there are, you know, computer, I mean, as we were experiencing last week, you know, cyber, no one thought that the internet was a national, it, it, was, it was a toy 25 years ago. Now it's a genuine national security concern. So, so yes, the, the definition of what can affect national security in our country or some other country, that definition is expanding significantly. The politics, not as much.
4: So, thank you. I'll do do one last quick one. Okay. Uh, uh, Thank you. I don't know um, how serious an issue this is, but I have heard that there's a slice of America... That believes that the intelligence agencies and the mainstream media are somehow in cahoots. A lot of. Well, I'm not quite sure how big, but I want, from your perspective, is there a concern about the intelligence? I should should have an expert answer that question. (laughs) Let me let
1: me, Let me answer it this way. Our intelligence capability is vitally important to national security. They help us understand the world. And it's it's an imperfect picture. Um, it It is very damaging and dangerous when you have the current situation where the intelligence community and the president appear to be at war. And, and that's that's exactly what what is happening. And that is the last time that happened. It was a guy named Richard Nixon. Um, I, I think that that's dangerous. Uh, and and I, I would say that Donald Trump has a point. The, these these leaks are coming from somewhere. They could well be coming from the intelligence community, and and that's that's dangerous. It really is. But but. You know, Trump deserves as, as, as every bit as much, if not more, of the responsibility because he's, he's just, rather than supporting them, he's been denigrating them, you know, uh, for, for months. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel the same way about the relationship between the media and government. You know, when I was at the State Department podium, if a journalist was thrown in jail in Turkey, I would say so. And I would criticize, you know, the Erdogan government for doing that. And then I would get a call from the Turkish ambassador, you know, who would say, Mr. Secretary. I said, Ambassador, he goes, you know I, I once had your job. I said, yes, I know. <laughs> and I know why you're calling. You know, and he said, we weren't happy with what you said. I said, I, I understand. And you can go back and report to Ankara that, that your message was sent and delivered. But I, I never, I never hesitated because ultimately, Journalists are essential to having a transparent and accountable government. Uh, and I, I believe that, you know, going back to Watergate and going back to, to Vietnam. Um, so it, it dismays me to no end when you have a president who is rooting for the failure of mainstream media, you know, or, ref- or, or deliberately has a policy of deliberately lying to the media, because ultimately, He's lying to the American, to all of us, to the American people. Uh, this is this is this is not the conditions for an effective government, and it is not the conditions for a functioning democracy. Uh, it's it great a great concern to me, um, and and uh, I, I, I hope over time the uh, the president will moderate his behavior. I'm not optimistic.